welcome to another edition of Expanding Mind. I'm your host, Eric Davis, continuing our ongoing conversations about the cultures of consciousness. Um, I did a uh, fun event recently at the Roxy here in San Francisco called The Holy Hate, uh, where I showed uh, some rare and priceless clips from uh, local oddball cinema's amazing archive and talked about the uh, varieties of uh, hippie religious experience and it was quite a lot of fun and uh, most of the clips and, and stories were centered in uh, in the Bay Area or California and afterwards went out to uh, grab a beer with some some friends including uh, John Law the uh, famous cacophony society rabble rouser and uh, early burning man uh, culture crafter who uh, uh, left the event early in the night or in the mid 90s uh, be before it began to metastasize into what it is today. We've had John on the show, but what he was talking about is that lately he's had the uh, opportunity to go give a bunch, uh, give talks to people around the world about what made uh, San Francisco uh, the unique uh, incubator of weird culture that it was. And is not so much today, but, you know, still has the uh, the ambiance of it. And John was talking about the various elements in particular in the 1970s that created this kind of uh, post-punk, industrial, wacky, satirical, sort of hippie, sort of anti-hippie, psychedelic weirdness that helped spawn uh, the survival research labs and ultimately uh, Burning Man, as well as many other Events and he was talking about uh, the the a couple of things. One is that it was um, that San Francisco had cheap cheap rents. It already had a history of uh, weirdos and freaks and sexual outlaws coming and making the city of their own. So it was kind of a beacon for weirdos everywhere. Uh, but one of the other factors was that there wasn't really, especially in the, at that time, you know, long before the rise of the, the Internet economy, there really wasn't the same kind of professionalism or professional opportunities you would have here as you would in, in Los Angeles or New York or maybe even Chicago. Uh, and that created a sort of a separate world where uh, creativity could take um, a, a, a different form. Uh, and the other thing he said that it's that's worth thinking about uh, was that unlike other sorts of avant-garde scenes, I mean, in many ways, the the, the San Francisco avant-garde in particular is is more more resembles a lot of European stuff than I think other uh, uh, cities in America, even New York and Los Angeles, other places. Uh, there was a certain kind of Dadaistic, wacky, um, out of the box. Uh, experimental, creative, social reinvention, but at the same time, it didn't really have the kind of uh, highbrow intellectual discourse that a lot of European avant-garde were always mixed up. So people were kind of allowed to do whatever they wanted to. So there's this kind of glorious, almost lowbrow naivete that was allowed to mix with these avant-garde aspirations and ideas of new societies and. Uh, of course, the satire and critique of mainstream America. And, and so uh, the, all these things really got me thinking about um, about San Francisco, about what made its its uh, creative world so innovative, particularly after the hippie era. So we're talking the 70s and 80s. 
the sort of punk era and 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 the things that, that uh, emerged from that. And I could think of no better person to try to hash some of this out with than uh, Mark Petrakis, who I know more uh, regularly as the Spoon Man, who's one of one of his uh, all, uh, alternate ID- IDs, uh, and. He's been a figure in the in the Bay Area scene for uh, for quite a while um, uh, as a performer, event organizer, uh, you know, early website developer for all the weirdos and freaks. He's worked with uh, the residents, uh, with uh, the the Institute for the Future, doing events and coordinations, and um, probably I uh, known best for the the series of events that he. Uh, he organized at the Anon Salon in Soma for uh, almost 20 years. And again, these were, were events that showcased the particular um, peculiarities of uh, San Francisco uh, avant-garde theater, interaction, silliness, uh, humor, satire. Um, and so I, I just wanted to bring Spoonman on the show. He's one of these guys. I always sh- I show up. I see him at parties. We have amazing conversations, but I've never really delved into uh, his story. And so, Mark, welcome to uh, Expanding Mind. All righty. Thanks for having me. Sounds fun. You saw right. a whole bunch of stories there, didn't you? You, you know it. You know. Well, let's start with the name. Where did what? Who is who the Spoon Man? Where did well, he come from? Spoon Man came from. Uh, uh, I don't know, man. I'm just thinking how to pull it out of time. Um, I, you know, I was doing theater, and uh, we had a really vibrant scene in the uh, in the late '80s with a lot of uh, really funny guys who were doing theater. Uh, there was a group called Dude Theater. There was an Elbows Akimbo. Uh, dance company, the really fun, talented people kind of just coming into their prime. Central Wilson was part of that. Michael McShane, great comic. Greg Proops, great comic. Um, and anyway, nobody had any money, so we started doing benefits for each other. And uh, we did these late-night benefits, and uh, everybody sort of contributed something. And uh, you could work with the other people. And so uh, I just sat down one day and uh, all of a sudden, this voice came into my head that said, who you are, what you want. You come steal food of man who already have spoon, man who already ready to eat. You come steal spoon man's food. No one time, no two time, no three time, maybe four. You come again, you pay attention. I smack you hard, you taste pain. Be good now, sit and listen, listen. You know, so he just does this pompous, uh, goofy clown thing. But then we, I uh, got Michael to do a uh, part of Crazy Grandmother and got somebody else to do a part. And we did it and it was a five-minute piece. And everybody did five minutes. And it was insanely good. I mean, it, the place was tore up. I mean, it just falling apart. So after that, I just said, well, this is the life for me. Vaudeville at this level is just where I'm at. So uh, I kept writing Spoonman pieces. Spoonman became an MC. He, uh, you know, he had, I wrote Spoonman Puppet Show, little, you know, crazy little characters that spun out from that first thing. So there was Pointy Face and, and uh, Pointy Face Man, he was the villain and there was Flathead and he was the, the white knight. And, and then there was Crazy Grandmother who would sit on them at the end. So it was very kind of chaotic and surreal and fun. But those were those were my people. And so when I started doing Cobra Lounge as an official show, uh, you know, Midnight. So I just 
bring in all the people in the community that um, were great. And I wouldn't give them any, any uh, directions except, uh, I know you're great, do five minutes. No more than five minutes. And then we put up like eight, eight improvising musicians and whatever slide projectors we can pull together and, you know, drape the place in visqueen and just, just do the show, no rehearsal. And it always worked great. So, I mean, I want to stay there because I don't think that's going on in other places. I mean, there's something specific both about the the role of improvisation, of just spontaneity and just jumping on the goof, and to a certain kind of humor, a certain flavor that's a bit dada, a bit sarcastic, but but still life affirming. I don't know. I'm 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 just kind of fishing here because mm-hmm. i don't really know this period i don't really know these these times but it from from talking to you and from seeing the, the kind of events associated with the scene later on it feels like there's something kind of specific going on uh, about the humor and about the spontaneity mm-hmm. well you know i mean um the whole data side of things brings in chaos it brings in disruption um you know, the idea of uh, not politically correct or pushing some kind of envelope, um, you know, that was a kind of a pre-label time. And uh, I think increasingly we're getting boxed in by labels of all sorts. And so, you know, the the kind of goofy, exploratory um, humor you know, it just gets harder to support. I mean, how do you support it in an environment when, you know, the the cost of renting a venue is so high and the insurance and the, uh, you know, the permits? I mean, you know, the, the you know, a lot of what we were doing in the, uh, in, with the non-salon and all was, was kind of, you know, skirting around the, the edges of, uh, of, uh, of, you know, permitting and insurance and, you know, which of course can lead to horrible things like uh, ghost ship, but it, you know, but you can't take it away without basically, uh, you know, gutting a whole lot of creative energy. And so I think at that at that particular time, everybody was just all you know balls to the wall and felt that they could do anything. Dude Theater did some wonderful, wonderful shows. They're just so funny, and and so uh, you know anarchistic. So. Yeah. Well, talk about. I mean, that's another thing. Is it is like the the politics of it are kind of interesting. Where it it seems like, you know, punk in the most general sense kind of cleared the the room of 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 like a certain sort of earnestness. So even if you were cr- very critical of mainstream society and very very clear that there were better, more interesting ways of doing things that that didn't lead to a sense of like calling for a new sort of social movement or a new sort of organizing ideology. Instead, there was this kind of turn towards uh, towards pranks, towards uh, surrealist humor, towards the unknown, towards a kind of wackiness. But it still had a kind of a sort of politics to it, a sort of anarchist politics to it. Do you, were you sort of a, a aware of that? Or like, how did you feel like the the politics of what you were doing, since it was so dependent on actual economic conditions, on the new forms of relationship that people were having with each other, deciding what does it mean to have an event, what does it mean to perform, like there was a whole kind of very collective situation that was going on. So how, how would you characterize that, the sort of political 
sensibility there? Well, number one, there was, a, you know, I mean, going back right to the 60s and the 70s, which is, you know, of interest to you and which is actually part of my history, um, you know, like there was that explosion that happened, right? And also you come out and I think, you know, age or youth or uh, possibility is just important, biologically speaking. You know, you're going to, you know, I got to stay up all night and work on this shit. That's not a problem. Well, you get older and you don't do that anymore. So that the kind of anarchy that you need is a kind of confluence of forces that work to enable that kind of perspective. You certainly don't think about Gerald Ford in the White House or or even, uh, you know, Richard Nixon or and then God help you, Ronald Reagan comes along. And it was still OK. And maybe there was some kind of. Uh, you know, the cancer wasn't as advanced at that time. Uh, you know, even though Reagan was a cancerous character, uh, you know, it didn't filter down. Are you okay now? Yeah. Uh, it didn't filter down to the local level. People were living relatively inexpensively. There was a lot of interaction. Are we losing our signal here? You're blipping. Oh, I'm okay. Okay. I'm hearing, I'm hearing this blip, blip, blip sound. But it's okay. It's not strong. Um, so I'm saying then that you've got those confluence of forces that kind of just lead you to follow the instinct, right? I mean, where's that great that great line from um, you know the great idea that Gombrich in the in the history of art said you know it wasn't an accident that uh, there were you know 200 impressionists painting in Paris at the same time, right? I mean, they were looking over each other's shoulders and going, well, if you can do that, I can do that. And, you know, and what's to stop me? What's to stop me? And certainly, I don't think politics was a big um, a block at that time. We were living in San Francisco, too, of, of uh, you know, George Moscone and Harvey Milk. Um, you know, it was, it was perfectly fine to, you know, strut your gayness. You know, the Sisters of Perpetual Indulgence, the Coquettes, um, Angels of Light. Uh, she's, I mean, you know, so there was this encouragement to just express yourself, you know, and, uh, and there wasn't the boxes that, that the, the larger culture, uh, felt constrained to put you into. And, uh, I think what we're, you know, what over time, the economic lines, the political lines, um, you know, and also let's not, you know, forget like, you know, technology as a, as a, you know, a herding, uh, uh, technology, you know. In terms of, you know, dividing you into your friends and these boxes and this and who's your followers. And, you know, it's just like, wow, that's very not a, that's very not chaotic. That's very not anarchistic. So there, I think there was this this explosion um, and that 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 sort of allowed you to work around whatever kinds of constraints we see as big today that were not quite so big then. Yeah, I want to get to some of the contemporary stuff, but I still want to maybe out of pure nostalgia stay a little bit with uh, back in the day. When, when did you when did you move to to uh, San Francisco? I mean, you were already doing performance and stuff before you came here. If I if I if I know the story right. Yeah, well, I I came in the mid seventies, and um, you know, I was um, I came here kind of in a in a kind of a spiritual context, you know. I was living in Chicago and hanging out with all my bluesy friends and doing theater. And, uh, and I got into the, you know, meditation thing. And I thought, oh, man, you know, it just sort of tripped me out. You know, it started like all of a sudden I was like, uh, you know, I'd lost. I don't know. Just stop. I just 
changed. You know, and I got a lot more chill because I'd lived in New York and I lived in Chicago and I was pretty high strung. And, uh, you know, and after, you know, a couple hours of meditation a day for six months, uh, you know, I felt differently. So I wanted to be around that energy. And, um, you know, I'm, I come out of a Greek background, too, right? I'm old, you know, my parents are both born here, but all my grandparents are born in Greece. So I grew up around all these Greeks, you know, all this, com you know, community of, uh, we're Greek, we're Greek. And I was like, you know, as soon as I could, you know, I just, you know, jettisoned out of that world. And, um, and you know, I always had a kind of, uh, you know, my father's a, a writer. And so, you know, there was always kind of a, it's okay to be an artist, you know. It's like hokey dokey. I like to hear that. That sounds like way more fun than, uh, you know, working at a bank. So, um, so I had that kind of propulsion. But then to get away from the from the homeland, you know, from Chicago and the family and the community, and also, you know, just a bunch of Chicago guys, you know, were still. I mean, they had done, you know, and everybody had done drugs but you know how it manifests in, in in the city in that in, sh in that city at that time uh i went back later to work at steppenwolf theater and it had changed a lot you know it was much more uh accepting of um create creatives you know you weren't so marginalized and or you know just under the radar so you know it sort of realized the value of the art scene which every city does, right? I mean, that's where the real estate prices go up, where you, where you can, you know, like uh, Abbott Kinney and, uh, you know, uh, wherever you can have creatives around and, you know, have uh, art openings and, you know, wine tastings and all that. But um, so when I arrived here, it was pretty just kind of, you know, there were a bunch of, you know, people kind of doing this spiritual trip, you know, Asta, which became Landmark, and Esalen, and uh, those kinds of things. Everybody, there were gurus everywhere, Indian guys, and, and you know, pseudo-Indian guys, and, you know, and at the same time, there was the punk scene, you know, which was not really my scene, but, you know, I knew that was happening at the Mabuhai and all around there, and, and that was really cool, but there was uh, research, and uh, Vale, and all those people uh, were, were starting to publish and of course those were seminal right <laughs> i remember when i first came to san francisco i'm in front of city lights bookstore you know um and uh, this guy he looks like he you know he, he just landed in san francisco the day before but he's all hippied out and he goes who are your originals man who are your originals you know and, I'm, and i go man i totally <laughs> yeah i know what you're saying you know these are the people that form you whoever they might be you know william burroughs or um, Kenneth Payton or Marshall McLuhan or whoever kind of, you know, got through your stupid, you know, filters of ignorance and went, boing, listen to this, boing, listen to that. And, and um, so I think that we all were kind of running around with a little file cabinet in our heads of ideas that were unformed that somehow we wanted to form. So I know for me, being in theater and playing regular parts was always a kind of joke, right? Because it's like, um, don't step out of the play. Don't step out of the play. Um, you know, you got to sort of keep to that reality. And I always like, you know, I just, you know, my first act of theater was to break the fourth wall as much as I could. So Spoonman would come out and he would just interact with the audience for as long, you know, as long as he wanted to. And people were encouraged to drink beer and shout you know, and do that kind of thing. So 
I knew that that part of me was there, ready to pop out. And so that environment at the time gave me that. I think one, one thing I want to kick back on, because it's just something that came to me yesterday when I was talking to somebody, was the golden opportunity that was created in that 60s period, right? Um, and it was such an explosion. And anybody who went through it probably you know, knows that there was this convergence of um, you know, pop culture got psychedelicized, urban culture got psychedelicized, and, and even everybody out in the heartland got psychedelicized. You know? So there was this empowerment, uh, generational empowerment that happened. And, uh, you know, you had like all these, you know, creative, you know, middle class kids who, uh, you know, sh changed how how art and culture um, would be uh, processed. And then, of course, you know, the commerce, you know, people would jump into it quickly. You have urban culture, you know, a kind of sense of solidarity with Black Panthers, with indigenous peoples, you know, realization that shit, man, we're all the same consciousness, we're all the same awareness, what, what's keeping us apart, you know, bullshit's keeping us apart. And then by, by 67 or 68, even if you went to school in, you know, the middle of Iowa, everybody had done psychedelics too. So there was this kind of awakening of a generation of kids who grew up outside of the city. So I think that that was, our, that was the, the great treasure from that period that we brought forward and then everybody expressed it differently and of course you know we spent it and so you know gradually the treasure got you know at least in a in a kind of um, initiating sense it got smaller but then you know you go off and you start developing these things right and um yeah i'm ahead. curious to hear more of uh, uh, just about just to give us a slice of like some of the uh you know the the craziest party events or uh, the theatrical explorations that you that you did once you arrived in the city or you know through you know once you were kind of absorbing all of these influences of course you know vivale and research is just uh iconic i mean it really gave a kind of context for the sort of punk energy by linking it to other trends in you know, esoteric practices in literature in uh, other periods of uh, cultural history. Like it really created a very rich context, and I, I think it helped make again San Francisco be a be a unique place to to draw off of these things, and at the same time keep reinvesting in that the possibilities of the magic moment, of the spontaneous moment, of the moment where you don't know what's going on, the moment where you're pulling it out of your ass and you're doing it together. And then something happens, you know, there's this kind of extra event that leans in or a sort of synchronicity or a sort of, uh, you know, collective magic that just sort of arrives. And it can be very subtle. It can be very silly. Um, but it seems like unless you're throwing yourself, you know, kind of uh, down before the gods of chaos, at least a little bit, uh, that stuff isn't going to come. And for a while there, there was just a, a lot of room for uh, that sort of, uh, of invocation. So if you can, if any of this is like triggering memories of, of uh, performances you were in or events that happened that really mm -hmm. um, knock your socks off, uh, you know, I'd love to hear about it. Okay, well, I mean, I certainly think like what you're describing is, is that process, you know, from following up on what I was saying. When people come here, they come here for various, 
various reasons, there's a, a tolerance and an openness and an acceptance and uh, non-judgment, really. You know, I mean, um, I think that this is, um, you know, I mean, when you think about today and you think about the various constraints that are around us, visible or invisible, uh, you know, it makes a lot of the stuff harder uh, to do that kind of thing. Now, of course, if you're, you know, 24 and you're here and, and you don't want to, you know, you know, get a great job uh, programming, then you're still going to do chaotic stuff. And that's, you know, more power to everybody who does that. Um, and they can do it, you know, at the same time, you know, a lot of technology art is kind of advanced to a point where, you know, the, the, the blur between the art and, and the, uh, you know, commercial applications is, is thinner. I mean, I think the, you know, if we go back there and to that, to the late 80s and the early 90s, there was just like, I don't know, people were, you know, Mark was starting to work with robots and there were other robot guys, Chico McMurtry and Matt Heckert. And, you know, it's just like such a, it was jubilant to go to one of those shows. I mean, you know, and watch fire spit across, you know, the, the alleyways. And uh, those, that was very exciting. And I think, you know, like, like all the Burning Man guys, John, you mentioned, and, you know, Larry and, and, and um, Michael Michael, you know, they all used to come to the announce salon early on and, you know, before there was a Burning Man. And, and, you know, they just had this kind of vision of what they wanted to do. And everybody was like, totally cool. That's great. You know, and they put the man up at Baker Beach and that was totally great. And, uh, you know, and then the whole thing kind of developed out in, in, uh, on, you know, on the ply in a different way. But that was very similar to, um, you know, creating a context. And, you know, like when I, like, I kind of use that term of vaudeville, because basically you are the vaudeville. You are running around and you are dropping your proscenium wherever you want it. And then, you know, you go, come forward, you know, whatever. Hey, what, what the hell is that that you're doing? You know, it's like, well, I want to understand that. What are you doing, man? And that, and because you're you're basically opening the door into somebody else's vision of their own anarchy, their own chaos that they want to express. And maybe you can help them, or you say, I, "You should talk to this person." Or, you do, you know? Do you control? Do you do you do controller stuff? Because you could totally put that through a, you know, you mold over, or, you know, that, those guys. That's what you're doing. You know, so you're you're kind of bringing your theater with you as you go. And uh, certainly, you know, Bernie Man is like one of the, you know, I mean, I think what we what we what we're blown away by Bernie Man is like, that is the biggest fucking proscenium I have ever seen. You know, I mean, that is like, why don't you put Africa inside that proscenium? You know, it's so big. So the scale of that is very, uh, you know, trippy. And they used, you know, there was great fire art uh, out there at Burning Man before fire art became a concept in itself, right? It's sort of like, again, that idea of impressionists copying other impressionists. You know, somebody does fire art, and next year, two people, and then 10 people, and, you know, pretty soon, you know, you've got a whole community of fire artists. And that, that follows um, today. So those kinds of events, those kind of impromptu, public events that you knew were illegal and were crazy, but, you know, they were so energizing. And the people who did them were so dedicated, you know. Um, you had to, uh, you know, you knew there was no commercial possibility there. You know, I mean, my, even the Cobra Lounge, I think I had two television producers 
that we tried to make it into a packageable item, you know. But as soon as you turned up the lights on it, it, it just felt weird, you know. It was supposed to be dark. It was supposed to be subconscious. It was supposed to be, you know, extraterrestrial. And um, and maybe now you could do it with um, with lights. But then, you know, taste changed too, and it's all fragmented. So, yeah, but but it does seem like that there there there's something about that that resistance to being translated into an obvious cell, you know, even even an you know like an underground hit or something like that. That there, that's that seems to be part of the mix. You know, I always think about that that movie about the coquettes, the documentary about the coquettes, who are of course this this very you know, uh, you know, they they probably translate better than a lot of stuff in the '60s that was happening in San Francisco, in the sense that you can recognize with it within their crazy performances, and they would do these sort of anarchic, uh, gay, colorful, ridiculous, celebratory, sacred, profane kind of events mm-hmm. in San Francisco, very popular, and, you, and we can recognize the fashion sense. I mean, really, in a lot of ways, like the the crazy fashions that we associate with later on, with like Burning Man or or other sort of freak scenes, you can you can trace back to to some of the stuff that the Cockettes were doing. But in the film, it's really interesting. So they're huge in San Francisco. They're a buzz. Everybody loves them. They do these events that are kind of like rituals, but they're kind of like celebrations. And the community is recharged by their their performances. And so they're the hot. Sh- they're like these hot shit performance artists. And they go to New York and everybody is like super psyched. They're like, oh, my God, the Cockettes are here. And they, you know, they're I think they're a radio city. And like everybody goes, you know, Warhol's there. Everybody's there. And it was like a total dud. Like it was it didn't translate. There was something left in San Francisco that they couldn't bring either a context, a sense of community, a um, a different notion of art that's not so highbrow or something like that like there was something really missing and that always struck me that there was some way in which uh this stream that we're talking about at least for a very long time just uh-huh. was it resisted incorporation whether it was into right. the market or even into existing right. forms of art and performance right i mean you know how you know language is language of course is kind of where everything begins you know so how you how you frame things and how you how you discuss things, um, you know. I think in the in and and I would like in you know in my other model there where I was kind of talking about pop culture, urban culture, heartland culture, queer culture is absolutely uh, right up front as is feminist culture. Uh, but um, you know there is a kind of disregard for precision, like fuck that, right? I mean, John would be a great person to talk to about this, and we've talked about this before. You know, it's like. Don't make it pretty, man. Don't make it pretty. Don't make it too precise. Don't make it too tight. Don't make it, you know, because otherwise you just kill the mother, you know. You turn it into a product, and now you're stuck, right? Now you're, I mean, I knew the guy who wrote Grease. He was like, you know, he was he used to hang out in Chicago on Lincoln Avenue, and he was a really nice guy, and somehow he wrote that play Grease as a really great little piece, right? Awesome, you know, music collaborator and my friend directed it for the first production. It was a small production. It was so cool, right? That became like the package that killed him, right? I mean, you know, he never had to work again. And, you know, he died young. Um, and so I think that in a lot of ways, if you're, if you're kind of in it for the long haul, you know that 
there's some roads that you just shouldn't take. You know, there's some turnoffs you shouldn't take. Um, you know, other people take them and they work great, right? I mean, I had a lot of friends who went to Hollywood, went to L.A., you know. I worked with Danny Glover when he was driving a cab, you know. And then, you know, he's often, and he's a great, great, great man, you know. And, uh, you know, Peter Coyote and Whoopi Goldberg and those kind of people. And, you know, it's good. It's good. But, you know, when I was in L.A., I was like, I don't like L.A. You know, I don't like, I don't like the business. And, uh, you know, I mean, you know, agents, if I don't think of them as agents, are great. But when I think of them as agents, they're agents. And, um, you know, so, so there's that kind of thing that the Cockettes totally had and the Angels of Light totally had which was like, the gesture is what mattered. Do you see the scale of this gesture? Do you see how how full we fill this experience here? And then, you know, you sit outside, you know, like, uh, you know, like a critic and pick it apart. Well, it's easy to pick apart. It left its bones exposed, you know? It didn't try to hide them. It didn't pretend it was something other than it was. That whole thing was really magic. It was powerful. And it, and it totally you know, I mean, swept through through town. And, of course, this is, you know, kind of concurrent with the AIDS crisis, too. So it had an even greater poignance for everyone's evolution, right, to realize that, wow, that person's gone. You know, those people are gone. That group is no more. Um, so, you know, there's an evanescence to art, right? Again, this is how you frame it, you know, with your words that you, you need to hold on to, and you need to hold on to that part of it, which is strong. Um, you know, like Spoon Man, for me, was like, that was a big wooden spoon, and he was ready to beat anybody up over the head with it. And, um, you know, it was like, like it was sort of a silly way, of kind of, you know, protector of the nursery, the nursery of a childlike spirit. You know, but he was very Ubu-like, too. He was very pompous, right? Jung said when the subconscious speaks, it speaks in pompous tones. So, you know, sometimes you got to be pompous. And other people look at that and go, oh, it's pompous. And they write it off, you know. They go, oh, they're not seeing where it comes from, where the roots are of that. So in terms of the, you know, this sort of cavalcade of, uh, of, of amazing, crazy uh, events and groups and people, um, you know, I think they were all part of that. They were all woven from those earlier threads of uh, appreciation and tolerance and acceptance and uh, enjoyment. I mean, just pure, oh, my God, that's so much fun. I love that. Yeah. The, you know, one of the things you mentioned was how, you know, nowadays it feels like everything is, you know, we're kind of boxed in in this way. Even if we try to break out, there's already sort of a system there waiting to kind of capture and organize this. And and the technology has a lot to a lot to do with this. And you know, in a lot of ways, we're talking about is that what are those what are the conditions that allow real creativity and sort of spontaneity and like unpredictability to to happen in a way that might lead to things later on. And you know, ultimately, things emerge. Uh, that could be useful for the market or whatever. But uh, nowadays it just feels like it's like always already organized. Like you can't get to that first place and it's already mediated. It's already part of a scene. It already has discourse around it. Uh, you know, it's, it's, it's really hard to kind of get out of uh, the loop, but that's not how technology, at least in the sort of sense of, you know, digital technology networks, uh, the World Wide web, all that stuff. 
that's not how it initially appeared. And I, I know that, you know, because we're also talking about San Francisco in that sense, you know, and, and you were part of, uh, you know, early internet culture in the early 90s and, you know, you're trying to figure out how to make it work for groups like The Residents and, you know, uh, uh, Clubfoot Orchestra and other, you know, kind of outsider groups. How did the, the emergence of early technology kind of change the dynamics? Oh, yeah. Well, I mean, technology, you know, like, you know, sort of showed up around 88 or 89. Um, um, and uh, for me, um, I was doing theater and um, I ran into these two guys. Uh, let's see, Tad, Tad, he was a, he's a science fiction writer. Tad, and I can't remember his last name, and um, Andy Harris. And they both worked at Apple. And okay, so they had this idea. They had this script they were working on. It was a sitcom about Silicon Valley in 1988, you know? It was like, you know, I was like, wow, you guys are crazy. But, you know, they, I knew all the actors and the performers, and so, I, you know, I could easily cast it. But, uh, but basically, we sat down and, you know, it, in diners and talked about stuff. And, you know, and they said, well, you know, you need a computer and a, and a modem and a printer. And I said, oh, okay, cool. And they stole one from Apple and they gave it to me and I never had to give it back. And I got online because I knew Howard Rheingold and uh, our kids went to the same preschool. And, uh, you know, and I, I just knew right away when I saw Howard, I went, okay, uh, you know, we got to be friends. And um, I got on the well, which is, you know, early uh, conferencing asynchronous con conferencing system and all of a sudden you know you were doing these late night long threaded conversations with people in Germany and England and all over the place and oh it was like it was very psychedelic it was it was like stage two of something because like Howard uses that great term mind I, I don't I think maybe it's Engelbart's term but mind amplifier right all of a sudden, you know, it's just like somebody gave you a PA and you could blast your thoughts out across the world. Well, you know, the, the, the type of people that would come into your conversation, um, that was that was astonishing, really. It was very, uh, it felt very much like, uh, you know, a psychedelic kind of opening that happened there. And, um, you know, so there, I remember going to a, uh, you know, a conference, you know, and I go to these conferences where, you know, they basically invite me to go and I don't know how they covered it. But, you know, like I remember Jim Clark having a little meetup with, uh, you know, 40 people where he, we talked about, uh, you know, uh, creating a, a browser. And, and I thought, well, why the fuck we got Mosaic? Who needs another browser? You know, and, um, you know, so there, you know, there's my, you know, my insight into, you know, money making options. But, um the uh, that that sort of sense of everything was just unformed, right? They were it all kind of came back to these connections, and connection obviously is a huge part of the art experience or the the community experience, right? That's ultimately what you're trying to do, you know. It's almost like I sing, I dance, I hope I can connect, you know. That's kind of what you do. No matter I write, you write, Eric, you know, you write, and so thereby you connect, you know. I do. I do. Therefore, I might be able to connect, you know. Um, so I think that that, you know, the that first experience of technology just in text, you know, in, you know, in text based technology was a mind boggler. And then you could, you know, all of a sudden you could add images to it and, you know, postage stamp videos and 
um, uh, you know, that was pretty exciting. So, I mean, if you go back to that kind of, you know, you know, manger, uh, Bethlehem kind of moment, um, all was possible. It was a great opening. And of course, you look at what what that's become, because that, you know, obviously that, that took off on a trajectory that took the whole culture with it, you know, and all of capitalism with them. And, you know, so, you know, I'm, I mean, I don't know. I mean, a part, you know, I mean, maybe I'm, I don't I mean, I think we're, we're in a kind of a late stage of frivolity. You know, it's harder to be funny. It's harder to, you know, to like let it go. It's harder to, you know, crap on things you don't like, you know. It's like somebody's going to make a, you know, a complaint. Or, you know, other people are going to like, you know, raise their eyebrows. And, you know, so there's a, a kind of, you know, taming of the wild that happens. And, and I remember early, those early days, it was kind of like, it was like the land rush, you know, it was like everybody was kind of racing out into cyberspace, um, not knowing what they would find. And they would find amazing things. So I, I think now we, you know, we kind of, you know, <laughs> we kind of know what's out there, man, you know, there's the, you know, the, the dark web and, and weirdness and people's weirdness is reflected well, in it- you know, one of the things that I think about uh, that I even brought up in the little spiel I did when, when you had a, uh, a pataphysical society gathering, you know, a few months ago mm. um, is, you know, you've talked about Ubu, talked about Dada, we talked about that kind of, you know, the if you remember their their original response to, to the horror of World War One, to the collapse of all the claims of technological progress and that somehow Western civilization was so advanced. And then you have this absolute absurd nightmare of World War One. And like the only reasonable response is to just be kooky and to like break the codes and to undermine the pretensions and to create a space where something else might happen. I mean, just to have the, like a real unknown in the room. And now it's so weird on on the one hand, you know, the, the wilderness has been tamed that we're organized and interpolated by technology and all these networks and algorithms and tracking systems. And at the same time, there's also the sense that like reality in the sense of, reasonable uh, ideas about what's going on or science or agreements about how to run something, you know, in the, in the pragmatic everyday sense, like that whole world is, is actually getting weirder and weirder. So some of that absurdity and, and almost psychedelic sense of, of, of a hall of mirrors is now like our daily reality, even as we're kind of more woven into these, systems of control and so I, I i i don't know and i'm curious how you feel about this whole heritage this whole lineage it's almost like an anti-lineage lineage an anti-tradition tradition of pulling the rug out from under of, of going for spontaneity of going for frivolity of like radical frivolity D- does it have a place is it is it almost more of a an eclipsed strategy that no longer really works with our current crisis you know, how do you have a sense of the the place where this stuff, um, you know, exists in relationship to our to our present moment? Right. Well, I think you know it. It all distills down to to you. You know, I mean, there's you know, insert Terrence McKenna riff there, but um, you know, it it really does. Your your use of the term kookiness, you know strikes the eternal part of me as the wrong word. I think 
what what people are striving for in breaking boundaries is invincibility you know in other words you can't fuck with me you can't fuck with me i know mind control is everywhere i know we are all being fucking you know you know chipped stamped and marked for extinction i know that i see it everything i watch almost 90% of it is total bullshit right it's just complete control mechanisms. And, you, and then you watch people just responding to it. And, you know, and like the, the Ubu Trump guy is like the most amazing improvisational creature ever to strut the world stage. You know, it's like if you read Ubu, you go, God damn, this is boring. You know, he's not saying anything. Trump, he can say shit. And not only that, but he, you know, he gets like billions of millions of people to run around like, uh, you know, like scared uh, cats when he does that. Um, so, you know, going back then to what we're trying to preserve is similar to, you know, what you try to teach your children, that don't be afraid of the boogeyman, you know, don't be afraid of the CIA. Brennan's a schmuck, you know, they're all schmucks. They've all sold their souls, you know, there really are fucked up people out there. And uh, and they've got more control than they ever had before. And uh, and so that's that's our current you know, situation that we're in, right? This is where you and I both live and everybody else who's listening, you know, you all live in this reality that's been completely, you know, put together with just the basic intention of controlling you and your impulses. So, so, I, so what's, what's that invincibility about? Well, the invincibility is about the self. It's about your own sort of belief in what love is and what creativity is and what communion is and what connection is and what, you know, all these things are. When you feel attraction, what are you feeling? You know, are you feeling, you're like, oh, she's so cute. I feel really attracted to her, you know. Or is she like, whoa, there's something magic going on. Excuse me while I explore. Well, let me just oh, perceive it, receive it, you know, appreciate it, enjoy it, celebrate it. That's, that is like, you are stepping outside of the of reality, right? When you do that, you are stepping into your own imagination, and I think that that's where the invincibility comes. You know, we get old, we fall apart. You know, we, we I can't kick your ass anymore. You know, um, but that doesn't mean that I'm not invincible. You know, <laughs> that doesn't mean that the spirit that's in me is not the spirit of my grandfathers and and my ancestors, and, and of the earth, and of the trees that they grew up under. You know, even if I, you know, live in a condo uh, south of the market, uh, which I don't, but, you know, it's like, there is that which is not, uh, you know, which is off limits, and that's the individual spirit, and I think that that goes back to, you know, the artist inside of the culture, inside of the context of, you know, the Bay Area, and all these different you know, cultures that sprang up and, and, you know, and you suddenly found yourself flowering on this, on this tree over here and other people were flowering on that tree. So there's a kind of biological root to, uh, to this kind of activity. So that's kind of what I mean by invincible. In other words, it's like, uh, it's like that George Carlin rap about the earth, you know, nature's going to slough you off like, you know, like, uh, you know, uh, so quick, you know, the, the, the earth is the world. It's all this shit is way bigger than our bullshit. So 
identifying with it in that way is a uh, is kind of how art I think how art sort of takes on some religious overtones. Yeah, and particularly that that aspect of art, or particularly performance, whether musical or improvisation, or or all the, or crazy parties or stage vaudeville or whatever, is that that's a place where uh, the the kind of throwing the dice into the moment, or or making the move, or as you said before, pulling it out of your ass can paradoxically create the sense of invincibility or of the 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 pure reality of the moment. And in that sense, it becomes very related to spirituality. Even though we're not using spiritual language, we're not talking about gurus, we're not talking about ideas of the afterlife or anything like that, there's something about uh, cultivating and continuing to evoke and invoke the possibility of that kind of encounter, of that kind of falling in love with, of that kind of... um, hilarity like a like a synchronicity almost you know it's like the way that when synchronicity strikes it doesn't matter if your reason is going yeah yeah that was just a coincidence don't make a big deal out of it and it's it and you're not even just enjoying the moment it's like suddenly there's like this transformative implication and you can play with that you can weave that it can it can be a way to uh, you know, resist other sorts of stories or demands that are coming in from the external world. So it's it's a lifesaver that kind of links art and spirit in, in a way that that I because I always felt that about San Francisco. From the outside, things can look really frivolous or goofy. Or I mean, looking at looking at Burning Man, for example, oh, it's just a crazy party, and you know, it's just uh, you know the sort of whatever the inmates taking over the asylum and stuff like that. But I always saw the sacred dimension of it, and not in an earnest so uh, over serious way but but more like a real appreciation for the transformative potentials uh of of chaos or of the of the unknown that are brought willingly brought into the environment by a, a kind of throwing yourself forward outside of your habits uh and and being and doing that in relationship with others, you know, in the sense of expression or performance and, and, and that kind of, those kind of feedback loops are, uh, remarkably, uh, powerful and, and they still exist. It's just, I think that, that it requires almost more work, you know, or something, it requires something different to create those, in, right. those conditions now. Well, the, the, it does require a, a dedication over time. I mean, what you were, what you were talking about there, um, you know, in, in terms of, when I first came here, uh, the first thing I did was uh, join up with a couple other guys, and we started a vegan cafe in the mid-'70s on Union Street. You know, So you can imagine that was about 20 years ahead of its time. But, um, but all these spiritual-type people, you know, all these transformed uh, you know, uh, people would come in, and we'd, we'd talk. And because I was meditating and doing my thing, um, I, all I wanted to know was what their experience was. You know, what's your experience? You know, and and a lot of people they don't they they don't trust their experience, and so they put a, a a a grid over it of ideas, right? So belief systems. You know, there's six levels of reality, or and it's like, hey, dude, if I want to read a book, I can read a book. I'm asking you what's your experience. So that is, I think, the sacred. That is the um, that is the sacred, and uh, and the and the, the the trust in experience and uh, and improvisation, like improvisation is a kind of primal artistic activity, right? 
it's like you call me i don't know what you're going to ask me and i'm just going to improvise my way through it and and that happens to you i'm sure in your life where all of a sudden you don't know i don't know what's happening now so i just going to say something or i'm going to do something and i'm going to trust that you know there'll be stepping stones from that and i think people understand that that's why they do all these workshops and shit to find out how they can not worry about there not being anything there when they walk but there will be something there if you walk if you go towards that so trusting in that uh experience inside of you i think is part of the power that you know supports you the fuse that you know that lights up your your juice and makes you happen and uh, i think that's key Oh yeah, and I mean, just to kind of tie it back a little bit is in the thought that's coming to mind right now is that one of the purposes of art, and particularly satirical art, absurdist art, surreal, that whole kind of current of uh, of uh, you know sort of glorious madness, is that it helps to break down the grid of ideas that people build around their experience. So even if like you say, like you're a spiritual practitioner and you're, you're honing your like immediate experience on the in meditation, on the yoga mat, there's this flip flop where then in order to kind of organize these new novelties, you have a bunch of language or ideas that come from the, come, come from outside. You see this tension all the time, particularly in, in spirituality and in a way, like art and absurd art in particular, acoustic art, and I would also say things like horror and just intense, like, you know, whatever, spectral, supernatural ideas, mysteries, gothic, the weird, all of that stuff helps to deform those grids and possibly get you back into your own experience because you're always going to use words and the words are borrowed. The words are taken from the culture that pre-exists you, but there's a difference between adopting a grid and kind of trusting your own on the seat of the pants uh, ability to create a story or a meaning or a context or a, a or, or an exuberant expression out of something that's closer to uh, personal experience, and I would really like to believe that that still that font is still there, even as we live in a very different time. That there's still something about experience that holds those possibilities. Yeah, well, you know, I mean, it may be that uh, San Francisco, as what it was, is not anymore. And so, if we're trying to make generalizations around the place, it may be that uh, that's very difficult to maintain. It's very difficult to maintain in any American city, big urban center right now. But, uh, you know, it may, it may, you know, maybe time to go to Portugal or, you know, who knows. But the point, I think, is that that need that we all have in the most simplest everyday sense of uh, being interested in what's happening around us and also being attracted to experience or art or media that plays on our our need for the unexpected. In other words, I don't want to hear a story I've heard before. And if after two minutes of talking to you, that's what it feels like, you know, I'm looking for the exit. I'm looking for the exit. So the idea is how do you sustain that in your own life? How do you keep that story alive in your own life and attract it to other stories of other people who live, you know, a marvelous moment? and put those marvelous moments together. And we are invincible through time. We will, not be, we will not be squashed 
the city may get, you know, fucked up, or, you know, we may get, who the fuck knows what's going to happen, but that spirit is not going to be squashed. I mean, Wonderful. Well, you know, we're, I think we're going to have to end it there. That's a beautiful place to end. And thanks so much for, for talking with us about this stuff on uh, Expanding Bar and Bar. Sure, sure. Thank you. All right, folks. That's uh, Mark Petrakis, a.k.a. Spoonman. And until next week, keep your minds open.